This week on Hacker in the Fed, we have a couple stories about ransomware. An insider exploits a ransomware attack for his personal gains and a CISO's biggest lessons from quarterbacking a ransomware attack. Hector and I talk about AI-generated photos and what happened to the stock market. And then we answer listener questions about geopolitics, Hector's hack on the Indonesian government, and victims keeping their hacks a secret. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informant participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. All right, Hector, how's it going this week? It's all right. Not too bad. I can't complain. It's uh, another busy week, as usual. I'm sure the audience is sick of hearing me say that. but You can't complain. You just spent an hour complaining about how your week was so <laughs> shitty. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm not going to complain to the audience. I complain uh, to you. No, that's fine. That's fine. You know I love it. So, What's up with you, my friend? Oh, it's been a rough week, man. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah, we talked yeah. about it before the show, and so mm-hmm. a lot of personal stuff happening. But mm-hmm. we'll get through it. You know, it's another day. It's, it's excellent that I got to sit here and talk to you. That was fun. <laughs> Just a little inside baseball. It's uh, Memorial Day night, uh, mm. ten thirty at night, and so That's I right. I wouldn't uh, want to spend uh, my evening doing anything else but sitting here and talking to you, Hector. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I'll tell you, the same, man, the same. It was yeah. good to get, like really catch up. You know, for folks out there just listening, like, you know, Chris and I have super busy schedules. And these podcasts, you know, recordings give us an opportunity to kind of, you know, to, to really just sit down and talk. So Yeah, it forces us, you know, to, to keep up. So, you know, anybody's got a close personal friend out there and you feel like you guys don't talk enough, have a podcast. It forces yeah. you to at least talk once a week. Yeah, get a hobby together. Trust me, it'll it'll keep that com- that connection going. Yeah, no, it's great. I I really do you know value these conversations and uh, the advice you mm-hmm. give me. I know the audience would love to hear it, but you know some of the stuff. Maybe maybe for an after hours episode sometime in the future, but not right now. Man, we would have <laughs> to put a paywall on it, and we'd have to make a shitload of money because I'll probably lose my job. Sign NDAs <laughs> and all that craziness. <laughs> Not a crazy week in cybersecurity this week. Well, I mean, I would say the last two weeks, I've, I've seen a lot of breaches, but it's for the most part, you know, it's been kind of quiet if you uh, if you ignore that, if you ignore those stories. You but know? it's funny. Breaches like don't even make the news anymore. It's I so know. dime a dozen. Like, it's a, it's a shame. Oh, yeah. Everybody's getting, you know, compromised in some way. I mean, this is where I tell uh, what clients or when, not even clients, but when I do a speech somewhere, I do an event. And uh, I did an event. I, I told the audience and, and you a couple of weeks ago, I did an event in Miami. And one of the first things that came up was, you know, is there any possible chance that we could completely secure ourselves? I'm like, eh, there's always going to be a compromise. There's a breach somewhere. If it's not going to be an external act, there's going to be an insider threat. So yeah, go back um, to a pen and paper and some guy running, <laughs> running notes all through the office as email. 
Yeah. I mean, look, think about it like this. I mean, if you're assuming or expecting a breach at some point, you know, and you're not being preemptive about your security measures or, or your threat modeling or you're doing risk assessments or you're asking that question, the question being, well, what's the worst hit case scenario? If you don't have an answer for that, then you're in a bad place. You know, you definitely want to be able to speak to all the leaders within different organizations, departments in your organization and kind of come up with a strategy based off of those answers. Yeah, I think we got a story about that tonight. So uh, we'll, mm, we'll dig okay. into it a little deeper. But awesome. on to the first story and not surprising, not ah. surprising the least, <laughs> a story you sent over about uh, an insider, another insider threat, just forcing your prediction to come true at the beginning of the year. So. <laughs> So the title of the article is IT employee impersonates ransomware gang to extort employer. So apparently a 28-year-old guy in the UK had been arrested and convicted of unauthorized computer access with criminal intent and blackmailing his employer. Mm. Man, back in February 28, uh, the guy, the IT worker, his company suffered a ransomware attack. Uh, and then he went into an executive's email and took over and changed the payment the cryptocurrency payment to an account that he controlled. Wow. I know. It's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems like he basically piggybacked off that original attack. He made sure that he would get paid rather than the ransomware actors and essentially, you know, just engage in a secondary attack. Meanwhile, the organization is probably freaking out internally. Like, what do we do here? And he took advantage of that, mainly because he was the IT security analyst. And I got to say that this guy is... Uh, as scummy as possible. I don't understand what his plan was. Like, so he would have gotten paid and shit wouldn't have gotten unlocked. Yeah. And it would have been stuck. And someone's going to ask the question, well, we paid, then what? What happens now? So he was just man in the middle between the company and the attacker now, right? Yeah. He basically played so. man in the middle between the attacker and the client or the victim, sorry. And, uh, you know, he put himself in a situation where he would get paid instead. Now, the, the really tough thing here is how he actually thought he would get uh, get away with this, right? I mean, the blockchain, depending on, I mean, of course, depending on what cryptocurrency was used here, there would be some sort of transaction log evidence of of where those those uh, where that currency went. Yeah, as soon as you do a, a crypto exchange, the crypto wallet it goes into gets marked as a criminal activity. All the exchanges see the marking. And, you know, if you're a legitimate exchange, you don't deal with it. And then it goes through hops and, and, and you know, you can trace it through, uh, different places, and all of those get marked as, you know, hey, these are, are stolen funds or, or funds from a ransomware case. I just didn't, and he also created a one-off email. So yeah. sort of almost close to identical, maybe like changing like an L to a 1 to the original bad guys sure. and, and tried to get those those that information. So, you know, internal investigation re revealed that he had gotten into the private emails and that he did it from his home IP address. So not the smartest of criminals. It looked like the unauthorized computer access issue, the incidents, the crime itself, could have been punishable uh, you know, uh, by up to two years. Um, but because he participated in blackmail, he completely blew that out the water. Now he's looking at anywhere between two and 14. Yeah, it's a tough price to pay. You know, it was weird. Like the story says that he initially denied involvement, but then five years later, he pled guilty. So kind of slow <laughs> stuff, but. Um, yeah. And then he tried to delete the evidence before the guys got there. Apparently, it was still recoverable. So, like, this guy isn't wiping hard drives or anything like that. Or, you know, yeah. I'm not going to tell a criminal how to get away with it, but a hard drive and a hammer goes a long way. 
Yeah, right. And you know, it's just it's just another example how there's opportunists out there. You have to be very mindful and careful of these situations. This is why, depending on you on, on who you talk to, some organizations will involve a third party vendor to deal with this process in the event they have to deal with ransomware or some sort of ransom. Uh, you could call a company like Naxo or something or similar to to help kind of help you interface here. By them, you know, kind of involving their own internal security team and analysts, they shot themselves in the foot. They had no idea this guy was an insider threat, but he exposed himself as one. Yeah, it, it's strange. Like the company didn't was interested in paying the attackers. <laughs> I wonder what this guy's attitude was at some of those meetings. Be like, no, no, we should definitely pay. We have to pay. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> That's probably why the investigation went towards him pretty quickly. Yeah, not smart. And ladies and gentlemen, obviously, you don't want to do what this guy did. This was definitely something that I would say was is, is very frowned upon, even from, you know, within the security industry. You know, you have a lot of trust when you're giving these when you're given these positions. If you're an IT, you know, security analyst, or even if you're an intern or whatever, there's a lot of trust in you. And if you blow that, your career is over. You know, even even if you're given a second chance later on, people are going to look at you very very odd. So, uh, I would say, you know. Again, unfortunately, you know, breaches are going to happen. Ransomware may happen to you. And in the event that happens, make sure you have a, a solid structure in place and strategy to deal with something like this. I'm guessing the guys that were investigating this one was like, this is so strange. Like these IP addresses are coming back to Bob's <laughs> house. That doesn't make sense. Did Bob get hacked at this point? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's probably the initial thought was yeah. that the investigation was like, all right, we think we got you got popped, and they, the entry point was for you. Mm-hmm. We need to look at your machine and all that, and then the gig was just up. So. Well, imagine the scenario. Do you think the like the the security guys at his company figured out it was him? Do you think it was like law enforcement said, you know what? I think this is an insider here. From what I read in the story, I think it was a third party vendor that came in to do the investigation. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The third party vendors. Listen, not all of them are great. I tell you, I've, well, I've dealt Naxo with Naxo is Naxo is great. Naxo is the best. There you go. <laughs> but no, they, they do a lot of good in these situations because, um, you know, they, they kind of interface with the problem. They help you through the problem. Um, sometimes they either provide you a solution or they help you organize your thoughts during the process. You know, sometimes it's better for outside help. Yeah. For sure. No, I will say, though, with these investigations, you know, the investigation, it can only be as good as the granularity of your logs. And yeah. how far back they go. So, That's right. you know, the logs are the only really way to look back to see what happened um, when the initial attack happened. So, you know, without that, it, it makes the investigation difficult. Mm-hmm. So the next story, Hector, you sent over to me, I found it very interesting. It was, uh, I guess it was on uh, cybersecurity Twitter. Uh, sure. We went through this and it was AI generated photos. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a little politics in here, which I, I, I'd like to actually throw in and talk about a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, this morning, blue, a blue checkmark account uh, claimed a large explosion at the Pentagon and then the White House. And they had pictures of uh, the, the Pentagon and the White House on fire. Sure. And then a Russian state media amplified the fake Pentagon images. Um, and they, they were coming from a gold checkmarked account. Ooh. Uh, and then one blue checkmarked account that was designed to impersonate Bloomberg um, the, the news agency here in the United States, uh, Bloomberg Feed, um, that also sent it out there. And, and this, you know, these, these news feeds and the media feeds coming out then caused the markets to kind of artificially swirl 
the information and there was a big crash. If you know, it only lasted a, a minute or two in the markets, uh, but it definitely did affect it. Yeah, no, I mean we've we've had discussions even going back to my time as a as a bad actor. How can we manipulate media? And is it possible? And if it is possible, what is it that you can do to to cause a bit of chaos or havoc in some field or another? You know, as, as you know, during during my time, we you know me and the team participated in a compromise of a couple of media outlets where we published fake stories. Some f- stories propagated widely and were believable. Other stories were shot down immediately. Um, these guys here, you know, whoever was involved in this in this project, um, had created some some. I, I would look at this more like a proof of concept, and I would not be surprised if if more more propaganda like this happens again in the near future. We saw the SPX drop something like five hundred billion dollars within those couple minutes, you know. And and uh, going back to the proof of concept that I mentioned, you know, this could be uh, an attempt to test whether or not automated bots, trading bots, are going to react on bad news. And I think the theory was proven or the concept was proven. Yeah. Now, I will say that Hector was part of a group that put out a story uh, when they hacked into PBS that uh, Tupac Shakur was still alive. And I believed it. And I think he still actually might be alive. (laughs) I hope so, too. I would love to hear new music and I hope he's all right. But that would be so great if a new Tupac... (laughs) But if oh, he yeah. didn't show up, I expected him, to, if he was alive, to show up at the Super Bowl when Dre did the Super Bowl. Right. That's a good point. But yeah. he didn't. That would have been the time for him to return. But, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, mm-hmm. I, I think some of the stories are true that we, we may have lost Pac. Yeah. But, I mean, this is not the first time this has happened, right? I mean, we've had a similar case many years ago with a Syrian electronic army. Remember those guys? They just disappeared. But they were doing some major compromises, um, a lot of high-profile, you know, Social media hits here and there. I think they even compromised Twitter at some point. I, I, maybe I'm. No, they did. They did. They did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these, these guys, uh, they were making some big hits and they, they did publish a similar story in Associated Press um, and they published, you know, similar claims. It seems that it may have caused a dip back then as well, right? The part that I, I want to talk about, and you know, you know, Elon's a listener. So I don't want to get too much into shitting on Elon Musk because um, he loves the show. He writes in all the time and we'll have him on. But uh, in due time. But the the way this was written up, and again, it was just a Twitter feed. But it, but it came across as kind of political, saying that you know, oh, it's a blue, it's a blue checkmark account and a gold checkmark account. Yeah. My personal feelings is that was just what Elon did in order to bring some money into the company. So he pays an outrageous fee for this company. It's not making nearly the money that it reportedly was. Um, and he's like, I have to come up with some ideas. I know historically. Like you would rely on a blue check mark to be, you know, oh, this is a legit account. If they put a, a tweet out, you know, that's good information. You know, it's some it's an account that's been verified. But as soon as he started charging for it, that blue check mark doesn't mean what it used to mean. It used to mean verified and it was a good account. But like we should now know that a blue check mark means, hey, I pay for this, you know, this account, you know, that I, I get the extra services that come along with it. It's no longer that that verified tag. Yeah. And so now it brings up the question, right, of how can we validate content online? How can we make sure that the person that's tweeting or writing or authoring whatever it is we're reading is the person they claim to be? And even if these people are validated, does that really mean anything? You know, it starts to, in a way, you know, I know a lot of folks feel uh, that this is this was controversial on behalf of Elon to make the decision to open up blue check marks everyone 
I, I really don't care either way. I, I had a blue check mark and it's gone now and I'm okay with it. But now it's th- it starts to, to uh, you know, to kind of bring up those thoughts of, well, you know, how much, whether it's automated trading bots and other algorithms, how much of those tools or those algorithms really relied on quote unquote validated or, you know, uh, some sort of validation uh, or, or or maybe even uh, checkmarked tweets. Like how, how, how much of that stuff is, you know, really that important to the algorithms? And apparently it is. So, it, you know, is that Twitter's fault? I mean, I, I agree with you that back when, you know, Bloomberg feeds or this this fake sure. Bloomberg news one, that would never have gotten a verified checkmark. No, but, but, definitely not. But these blue checkmarks are no longer, it doesn't mean verified anymore. And so no. all these people running these, you know, NASDAQ bots or whatever the bot was that dropped the market, um, you know, they should they should update their, their stuff. And it's time, yeah. It's time to update their shit, really. Um, this, this was a very expensive lesson for them. And I'm sure they lost plenty of cash along the way. You know, that money just does not disappear. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, somebody had to sell for it to drop $500 billion. There were some sells going on. Well, let me ask you a stupid question then, right? Yeah. Let's, let's theorize here. So I'm sure the SEC and whoever else, maybe even the FBI, will probably be investigating whether or not stocks were being shorted at that time. And maybe looking at the companies or the individuals that were shorting stocks during that time. to See, maybe there's a correlation, a connection back to this story. Yeah, maybe this would be a good investigative route. I mean, I would think the SEC sure. would read would run that, but you know, if it's criminal, the FBI will do it. But but sure. yeah, if I if I was you know uh, working you know financial fraud and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. why not? Let let's do a subpoena and find out you know who was shorting, who profited the most from this. That's it's a it's a great investigative angle. Well, in your opinion, do you think someone's actually doing that, or that's just you know us theorizing right now? I think we we have enough FBI agent listeners, and we, we do have quite a few. I get I, people reaching out that maybe maybe they just hacker in the Fed just opened up a federal case. There you go. <laughs> nice. Hector is giving back again with coming up with investigative leads. <laughs> so chill, bro. FBI agents out there, we'll link it in the uh, in the description. You can link to the story and see all the details. Nice. The next story, oh man, a little update on Operation Cookie Monster. Um, hmm. The name of the article is Suspicion Stocks Genesis Market Competitors Following the FBI Takedown. It's about a month ago, uh, Genesis uh-huh. Market, which was a website that, fills, that facilitated uh, identity hmm. theft, uh, personal mm-hmm. details, we talked about it on the show, sure. uh, was taken down. There's about 120 people arrested from the platform, and then another 59,000 individuals were identified as using the market to to purchase or sell Mm. um, personal details. The article goes on to talk about how, you know, this this takedown, and there was an an administrator account that came on after the takedown trying to get people to say, no, no, that was just the, you know, the website stuff. That wasn't the actual, you know, the, the Tor Onion site that was taken down. Come back. We're good to use. Uh, but people are suspicious. Are you surprised? No, I'm not surprised at all. And if they are involved in criminal activity, it would probably make a lot of sense for them to avoid that tour service and or the website. You know, the FBI has shown itself to be very effective at compromising these uh, or involving themselves in, in scenarios where they can get access to these back end servers, set up a honeypot 
Well, they're selling personal information, not drugs in this site. But, oh, but yeah, oh my thing. bad, my bad. Yeah, we cut that out. But yeah, no, even even worse, personal, identi- uh, personal identifying information is even so. even more of a, you know, that, that sucks for anyone. They're selling non-Hacker uh, in the Fed listeners because Hacker in the Fed listeners are all using FIDO keys and uh, 2FA <laughs> and all that. So, But other people, they're selling their, you know, account information and login information. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that sucks. And I... Uh, you know, big shout out to the, the agencies involved in this and the bureaus involved in this for taking down that site. And but back in your day, when you were in the, this sort of world and sort of thing, did, did yeah. were there other things like this? Were there things that would pop up, and you know, everyone in the hacking community would freak out and not use the site? Yeah, no, that happened all the time with different different protocols. Uh, if you look at IRC, for example, whenever it was a you know kind of a shady underground quote unquote underground IRC network that sprung up and. Uh, and you know, allowed everything from carding to you know ebook wearers and all that stuff. Um, and then all of a sudden, the server would go down for an hour and come back online. Folks would immediately like just they would migrate in droves over to new networks. I mean, I, I saw that happen so many times. Or even websites. A website went down and 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 or had some sort of defacement with a law enforcement badge on it. Folks would freak out. But they basically just keep moving around in circles. I mean, you know, you could kind of call these criminals sheep in a way, because if 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 you're in law enforcement and you're doing maybe uh, corroborative takedowns or whatever, right, uh, or rather collective takedowns, uh, you may be able to sh- kind of herd these criminals into uh, a central service that uh, may have control over. You know, let's just go extreme here. Let's say let's say like Telegram is compromised or Telegram is working with the Fed in some way. Doesn't it make sense? You know, since a lot of people use that for these. Third-party sites to go offline. Those people are, you know, those criminals are kind of herded back to the Telegram service or similar, you know, allowing the law enforcement to kind of listen in even more, even more directly. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I would think about if I was doing, doing those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, I, I was thinking just as you're saying that, I think of a story I've never told. So, um, Silk Road. We took down Silk Road. Yeah. Um, three-pronged approach. Uh, I sent uh, a couple guys over to Iceland who took down the, um, the server and put up a splash page uh, and gained control of the cryptocurrency. Uh, and then I was out in San Francisco and I, uh, I arrested Ross out there. Mm-hmm. And you know we got Ross with his fingers on the keyboard and had his laptop. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called Mastermind and all that. Sure. And I had been up for three days. It took three three days, like no sleep, seriously, no sleep whatsoever. You know, dealing with the time difference between San Francisco and Iceland, and getting those guys and coordinating it and go to go smoothly and all that. That afternoon, we arrested Ross on the third day, took him down to the jail, got him all situated and all that, and went back over to his neighborhood where an FBI van was parked down, probably maybe a couple blocks away. Sure. Um, and the way we had, we had arrested Ross, you know, the laptop was up and running. And we took it, and in that van, they were doing all the forensics on it, getting all like the memory dumps uh, and all that stuff. And I called back to New York. Um, this was probably, you know, in San Francisco, this was probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. So it's, you know, well past midnight in New York. And I, you know, there was a couple FBI bosses on the phone and some prosecutors on the phone. They came up with the idea of why don't we just run Silk Road? Why don't we try to get people as they log in? I'm like, we just spent months and months and months taking down this, and now you just thought of this. You, you think we? <laughs> you think we have the capability to leave Silk Road up and run? We don't have the legal authority. 
So I, I sort of gotten like it was my frustrations just kind of bubbled over as I stand in this industrial parking lot trying sure. to uh, watch this guy Chris, a great guy. He's uh, uh, he might be a listener hack in the Fed, but uh, he was a forensic guy out in San Francisco, be able to pull passwords and all that. Um, and he's listening to this phone call with me, and we're just shaking our heads like I, this is unbelievable. Um, yeah, so. he, he, come on, that that's unrealistic. You know, yeah. that's something like you said could have been planned out months ahead. It's not a last minute thing. Uh, but if he's if Chris is listening, big shout out to him. Hopefully, he can throw in some questions sometime. Yeah, no, I, I, he might be listening because I got a, somebody reached out to me about hearing me on this podcast and mm. said they had just been in a class with Chris and Chris was telling like his Silk Road story about sitting in the van in the parking lot pulling all the passwords. Yeah. So nice. yeah, you yeah, know, Chris is a great guy. So if uh, yeah, Chris, if you ever want to reach out uh, questions at hackerinthefed.com or maybe you come on the show if you ever want to come on the show and talk about oh, yeah. your experience, that'd be great. Oh yeah, I, I personally would love to hear the forensic side of the kind of work that you guys did. I think that would be fascinating for the audience as well. well. I just got I just got invited down to do a speech and in, down into a forensic conference, uh, the mm. big like national forensic conference in oh. Austin in, in August. So maybe wow. uh, maybe I'll take you with me and you can hear it all. I am down with it. I'm down. All right, the next story up: FBI mm -hmm. releases warning about fake crypto job advertisements. So oh. criminal actors are targeting victims primarily in Asia in employment fraud schemes by posting false job advertisements on social media and online employment sites. This ties in exactly, Hector, to last week's uh, uh, pig butchering conversation. So people are being hired and lured over into these countries in Asia uh, and then almost sort of enslaved to run pig butchering operations. Wow, look at that, man. That's terrible. It is absolutely insane. And so they're doing it, you know, these, these, create, these fake crypto schemes, and so really what, why this story caught my eye is because just this week, Nexo put out a crypto uh, job advertisement. And I wanted to reassure the audience that that job advertisement is not fake. That is a real, <laughs> real position that we are offering at Nexo for a crypto security expert. So if, wink, uh, wink. Yeah, if anybody out there knows a little plug for Nexo, if anybody knows a, uh, a good crypto guy that could you know, testify as expert engagements and really knows mm. the back end. Um, you know, reach out because we are we are looking for to fill those positions. Well, I think that's a great opportunity for us. Anyone that, that's that's able to fill that role, it'll be fun. You guys get to hang out, and I promise to the audience that no, you will not be tied up and <laughs> and, and forced to do pig butchering. No, uh, no, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Naxo does not. Uh, we are very anti pig butchering, and it was great to have Aaron West on the show uh, yeah. and kind of let the audience know about that one. So uh, a lot mm -hmm. of good feedback on that episode. Oh yeah, absolutely. The next story I sent over to you was uh, Bridgestone, the tire company, CISO, mm -hmm. lessons from a ransom attack, including acting, not thinking. So the biggest yes. advice that comes out of this guy, this guy was the CISO during, um, during a, a ransomware attack. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing he can come out is that other organization is to designate key decision makers for handling such crisis before they happen. Mm -hmm. And That's Hector, right. I wanted to bring this up because I've been saying this for years. I've said it on this pod and God yep. damn it, I love it when I'm proven right. <laughs> I mean, it only makes sense, right? If you have an office building and there is a fire and there is no structure on how your employees are going to deal with the fire, whether it is to uh, contact 911, who's going to contact 911, um, how to deal with, you know, getting out of the building um, you know, and, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of different things you can do, can do rather, as part of a, a good, solid plan, you're going to have a mess. And this also applies to 
um, running an organization and running a security program. If you do not have some sort of delegation or designation of key decision makers, people that are going to be able to make decisions when something takes place, when something happens, then you're in a very bad situation. It's not going to be good. And you're going to be running around like a chicken without without a head. It's not yeah. cool. You can't have a meeting when the house is on fire. You have to have mm-hmm. have, have a plan and you have to have, have practiced it. You know, I, I maybe have been guilty to, you know, uh, you know, not think tabletop exercises are like the best use of time. But I'm, I'm rethinking that. I've been reeducated into realizing that, yeah. you know, with these large organizations, they need it. It's not just for IT staffs. Mm-hmm. It's for, you know, the C-suite because someone's going to have to make the decision that we are ending Internet connectivity. We are pulling the plug on our office buildings and our operations, which is going to cause that company to not make money anymore. But what's worse, letting the attack continue, letting Mm -hmm. the data exfiltration continue, or, you know, making the operations stop. It's a decision that needs to be made before it happens. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I know this is a great story and, you know, you picked it out here. Um, is there a specific incident that kind of uh, the CISO at, Br- at Bridgestone kind of refers to? Is there something specific that that they gained this experience from? I don't think he went into the details behind the scenes of what caused it. But I mean, I just, you know, dissecting uh, what his words is, I'm going to guess that they didn't have a clear cut line of action before this incident happened. You know, if he says the biggest thing, biggest takeaway is that organizations need to have that. I'm going to say at Bridgestone, when it happened, it was, well, what do we do next? And who's going to be the official word on saying when that's going to happen? And I'm sure bad things happened while those decisions were being made. Yeah. Well, I mean, as part of as part of like this article here, there was a reference to potential ransomware attack, right? By the Lockbit gang. Yeah, that's what this was an impetus from. So there was an attack. Yeah. He was the CISO, and these are the lessons. That the, the biggest lesson is to have a plan before it happens. Well, I, I tell you, I, I remember when um, I would have folks really kind of pitch the idea of tabletop exercises, and I thought it was cool. I thought it was very cool. I always liked the concept, um, but it wasn't until I participated in these these uh, these engagements um, that I, I saw the value, right? I saw that you could theorize or put together theoretical attacks against your organization and start to, you know, come up with questions and answers. And um, more often than not, we found organizations that really had no idea uh, who was managing their their backup environment um, or how the backup actually works. Or, you know, if there is an emergency at three in the morning on a Saturday, who is it that's being called and who's going to pull the plug if there's a plug to pull, Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm definitely for it, and you know, for all you, I would say for all you folks out there, don't be not, please do not be afraid of you know the uh, quote unquote tabletop exercise. It doesn't have to be an official thing. You don't need name cards and little green soldiers on the table. Um, it could be as simple as sitting down and having a conversation with all your leadership. Something we I mentioned before in this episode, sitting down and asking questions. Uh, what what would be the worst case scenario if an intern got compromised or was compromised or Let's change that intern to a secretary. Um, what do they have access to? Let's assume there's a breach. Do we have uh, backups in place? No? Okay, cool. So how are we dealing with asset management? If we're taken offline, if we have to pull the plug, how is that going to hurt us? I mean, these are the kind of questions that are very basic and introductory, but as you go deeper into those discussions with your team, you're going to get some good feedback. You're going to sit down, 
put together a strategy, and based off of that, do exactly what this uh, this gentleman said here. Uh, we need to to designate key decision makers for you know these kind of events. So yeah, big shout out to this. I think it's a great story. I hope the audience really um, takes a look at the link and goes deeper into it. Yeah, no, it, I agree. It's it's you know you know people you know you sort of roll your eyes. You hear a tabletop, it's going to be fake. If it's designed well, you're going to find the holes. You you know you guys you're going to know who to talk to. You know who to work with when when the attack happens. Um, it's just going to make it a lot easier if you just practice it beforehand. And so you know it's the same reason, like Hector said at the beginning, um, why we have fire drills. You know it should be the same exact thing. So if something's going to happen in the network, you know let's practice it a little bit. Yeah, and you know what would be a fun exercise? Maybe in the future when we both get time, we could do like a mock tabletop exercise with a mock company and, uh, you know, go back and forth for questions. You know, it could be simple, right? Five questions, whatever. And then based off of those questions, we could start giving some advice um, or even some opinions on, on what we think those answers should have been um, or even the takeaways, right? Something fun that we could do at some point, you know, just an idea. All right, Hector, let's get on to uh, listener questions. Uh, if the listeners have a something they want to reach out to us and talk to us about, uh, it is at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Um, Hector and I love this part. We love hearing from the audience. Oh, yeah. A um, lot of good feedback the last couple episodes. Uh, a lot of high energy a couple weeks ago. Uh, a lot of good feedback on Aaron West and uh, her information. So let's uh, let's see what's going on. So Rachel reached out to us, Hector, and she wants to know, what is one mistake you'd like to warn entry-level industry newcomers to avoid? Uh, she does add, besides the obvious of not breaking the law. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and, and thank you for pointing out the, the obvious, right? We don't want to break any laws here. Um, so I'll give my, just my opinion on this, uh, Chris, and feel free to jump in. I think one, one mistake that you want to avoid is overwhelming yourself. You know, you, there's a lot to learn. The cybersecurity industry is extremely broad. There's all sorts of certifications for all sorts of different paths and directions you could take. Um, if you want to be a pen tester, cool. Research that area, go down that road. You have your own set of certificates for that. If you want to be a project manager, that's a completely different side of the business that's still very important in cybersecurity. Um, a security analyst or a SOC analyst or threat intel, right? These are all different directions with their own different paths, with their own different certifications and trainings. Do not overwhelm yourself. Pick and choose your path and focus on that path and the lessons within that path. You can't do too much because you're going you're gonna to spend the next 20 years learning everything. And by then, you know what? You've just, you just wasted your life away. So that's my uh, first mistake you want to avoid. And I see this a lot, Chris. This is why I bring it up. I see folks that are like, yeah. I got my A+, I got my security plus, now I'm going to get my CS, CISSP, and I'm like, wait, hold on a second. So you want to go into management? No, I want to be a pen tester. No, 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 no. Now you're going in a completely different direction. So let's let's focus on where you want to go. You want to do pen testing? Fine. Let's start looking at offensive security. Let's do some try-hack me. Let's look at, um, you know, hack the box. Let's, let's look at a completely different direction, because right now you're kind of, you're just veering off way to the left. I agree. So, but I, the one that I came up with on this is is to keep practicing what you've learned. Um, like like Hector said, you can overlearn things. You can get too involved. But like I did a lot of programming in grad school when I was getting my CS degree, and I did not stick with it. Um, and so now, if I had to program something, it takes me a while to sit down and relearn it. So 
Uh, I kind of feel like programming, once you learn a language and, and have it, you know, it's like practicing the piano, you know, write a simple code once in a while, just, uh, just keep up with it. So you have that skill set and that mindset going forward. So uh, that's personally how I would do it to, you know, to, to avoid having to teach yourself over and over again. Um, you know, find a language you like, find the ones useful. Um, I mean, I wish if, if I knew one better, I would, it would be Python. It seems to be very useful to write things, uh, to, to make my job easier. Um, so, so that would be my best advice on that one. Rachel had a second question, Hector. She says, how do you personally keep up to speed on geopolitical issues and who is doing some of the best work at using geopolitics to inform their attributions? Yeah, no, this is awesome. It's a great question because it's, it's also complex and you have to really sit down and invest a lot of time. I can't answer the second part of the question, right? Um, I can't really tell you who is doing their best or some of the best work at, at kind of, uh, uh, using geopolitics to inform the attributions, that's that's a, that's beyond my scope. Uh, but here's how I personally keep up to date. I am looking at all or as many sources as as humanly possible in a topic that I'm interested in. So, you know, uh, as you guys know, I'm interested in the Ukrainian-Russian uh, situation uh, or conflict. So I'm, I'm looking at Ukrainian sources. I'm looking at Russian sources. I'm looking at American sources. I'm looking at um, news outlets in, in Poland. I'm looking at um, news articles out of Israel. I'm absorbing as much as I can on various topics that have to pertain or pertain to um, that conflict in order to to walk away with something that's of, of interest um, or, or at least an opinion that I could I could work with or I feel comfortable with. I can't choose one side or the other because there's a lot of propaganda from all sides, even if they if it's you know even if it's like uh, 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 direct or indirect or um, bias, right? Um, the one thing I want to do is corroborate as much as I can before I, I form some, some sort of opinion. Um, so that's what I do when it comes to geopolitics. What about you, Chris? How, how do you deal with this problem? No, I sort of do the same as you, except I add a little something onto it. You know, I, I have different sources of information come in. Uh, you know, I, I check in all the big places and all the normal places. But then I also surround myself with very smart people. Um, I find I find I want to be closer to smart people. You know, I love my conversations with Hector. You know, we have difference of opinion on things, and so we get to talk about things, talk through things. You know, I don't take what other people say as gospel. You know, some of it could be their opinion, some of it could be skewed in some sort of way. Uh, but having these conversations and, you know, keeping an open mind to somebody else's point of view, um, you know, has, you know, I've definitely learned a lot from Hector. I've learned a lot from different people I speak to and are close to, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are smart. And I, I trust in these opinions, you know, and, and I, I bring these all in and analyze it in my head. I always sleep on something. If I have a big decision or want to analyze something, I have to sleep at least one night on it. Um, That's wise. Very yeah. wise. So, and I do that with like big political issues and the geopolitical issues. And, and, you know, I, I take the information, I sleep on it. I talk to smart people, you know, and if I can't come up with a solution or some sort of, you know, idea of it myself, you know, I just continue to, to, to talk to smart people and get their opinions on things. Oh, absolutely. And I know there's some more background to her question, to Rachel's question here. I know that there is a connection to like maybe threat intelligence. The one thing I'll say, Rachel, and this, this, this goes to everybody else in the audience, when it comes to like geopolitics that involve hacking or some sort of cyber, you know, activity, cyber crime activity, whatever, attribution is extremely difficult. And I know that some people may say, well, look, we found this piece of malware or this compromise happened at a certain time within, you know, Russian time zone or Chinese time zone. 
Um, we found a piece of malware with a Chinese comment inside the source code. Um, you know, listen, you cannot go based off of that because it's very easy for me to make the same malware or make a malware uh, payload and inside put in, you know, Japanese comments or Russian comments or change the time zone of my device as I'm, you know, compiling a binary. These are things that are easily, uh, uh, can easily be manipulated. That's one. But two, we know, maybe not for a fact, but we, we have a good hunch that that's already happening. So when it comes to attribution, when news is complex, and when it also comes down to investigations, and I'm sure, Chris, you see the same thing. Um, the next question we're getting, Hector, is from Craig in Nova Scotia, Canada. And Craig wants to know about something that you recently talked about. He says, Hector's hack of the Indonesian government. Hector talks about a DNS takeover, but he didn't actually tell us what he, how he did this. How did he, did he social engineer it? Did he efficient, et cetera? How did you do the DNS takeover? And, and again, Hector, we're not telling people how to commit crime. We're not uh, telling people committing crime is a good thing. No, this isn't a, this isn't a crime in the U.S., so you know, we can talk about it a little more openly. Uh, sure. but, but you know, Craig wants to know, how did you do a DNS takeover? Yeah, no, that's a great question. With this specific attack, I, I could have I sworn I mentioned some of the details, um, but we'll go over it very quickly. The attack path itself was very manual, very thorough. It essentially was me identifying, one, uh, who or what runs or manages the infrastructure for the Indonesian government. Two, um, is it possible that there are maybe one or two centralized DNS servers for .gov.id domains or host names? Uh, three, if we've identified that, yes, it's possible that, um, you know, maybe there's a, a singular or central DNS infrastructure in place and we found who did it, well, are there any vulnerabilities within that infrastructure that belongs to that organization that I can leverage? And that's exactly what happened here. So I identified that at one point, uh, I highly doubt it's the same, you know, this was 20 years ago, 19 years ago, whatever it was. I'm, I'm sure the infrastructure has changed since. But at one I point- hope so. Yeah, I would hope so. But the Indonesian government at some point um, hosted their DNS records centrally off of NS1 and NS2.id. I identified that there was a university that was managing their IT infrastructure. And then once I found that out, I started scanning very simple port scans of IP ranges owned by that university. Was this university in Indonesia? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Once I, I kind of created an asset list of servers and open ports, web servers, SSH, Telnet, et cetera, um, from that university or within the university range, then I start doing you know, a cursory overlook at their web servers. I identified one web server that had a vulnerability where I could read files from the file system, and then I essentially moved laterally. I identified a vulnerability, read some files. I was able to, to get some credentials. I logged into machine over SSH. I was able to do a local root exploit or use a local root exploit to get root on the machine. Once I'm on the machine as root, I backdoored SSH using a PAM backdoor. Uh, and then from there, I just sat and waited. And I waited a week. In fact, if you guys, if any of you guys find my old blog from Xavsec at blogspot.com, I actually posted a link there, well, it's a dead link now, of the exploit that I used. It was a vulnerability that I found in x.org X um, that allowed me to leverage a local root or get local, local root access. Boom. 
I sat there for a week. We had an admin log into the machine. I got his credentials. I SSH back into the IP address he SSH'd in from. And then now I had access to the university. From the university, I moved laterally. I read through emails, the admin emails, until I got SSH keys that allowed me to literally SSH into NS1.ID. And voila, that's how I got access to the Indonesian DNS records. Actor, you mentioned this was 19 years ago. How do you remember it so clearly? Like, how, how did these hacks just not blend in, you know, to each other? Because it was it was one that I spent a lot of time on. I identified a vulnerability so I could leverage that vulnerability. And I published the, the exploit code for that vulnerability. It involves backdooring SSH, which included looking at, um, you know, the best way to, to backdoor SSH at the time. Some people would backdoor the binary and replace SSHD. Some people would uh, backdoor uh, the PAM module um, on the Linux system itself. So I just kind of sat there and I waited for logins and I had to read through emails and I had to find SSH keys and I had to move laterally. I had to look at file systems. I had to search for uh, search through SSH folders or directories. And then, yeah, I just able, was able to move back up um, into where I needed to be. Now, once I got there, uh, once I got access to, you know, um, these very sensitive hosts, kind of like uh, Knox or Network Operations Center machines, I was able to SSH to CERT that ID, which is a computer emergency response team. And once I had access to all their passwords, I communicated with my Malaysian friends and they communicated with their Indonesian friends and their beef. The beef between Indonesian hackers and Malaysian hackers uh, was settled. Do you remember all the details of hacks like that? Or do you, are there some no. hacks that you forgot? No, there's a lot of hacks I forgot. But oh. the hacks like that where I spent considerable amount of time, you know, I could tell you details from, from beginning all the way to the end. Uh, thank God, because like somebody will bring up a case I worked on and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I forgot I did that case. Yeah, man. I mean, it, but that's that's the way my brain works, though. Like, I could sit here and tell you, well, I don't remember anything from my childhood. But then I remember, wow, I remember the day when I lived in Puerto Rico. I used to live in a place called Mayagüez. Uh, not Mayagüez. I used to live in a place called Marueño, which is right outside of Ponce. Ponce is a very nice city, by the way. If you guys ever want to go check out PR. And I remember walking to school and I seeing a horse across the street. I was like, wow, that's an amazing horse. Do I remember anything else from that day? No. I remember just seeing the horse being amazed by its beauty. Do you know what your code name was in the FBI? Jerk off. I don't know. What? It was Ponce. Oh, no. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I did. As soon as you said that, I said Ponce. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I just remembered. So, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, well, I, was, I was raised in Ponce. I was there yeah. for, uh, I don't know, five, six years of my life when I was a kid. That was the code, code name I gave you. <laughs> code name Ponce. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. See, you did the research. Yeah, yeah. All right. Next question is from Corey. Corey re reaches out to us quite a bit. So thanks for being such a good listener, Corey. We love your questions. So Corey asked, uh, while most companies hide their intrusions from the public as long as they can, it appears they do so for clients and vendors as well. Uh, can you discuss the advantages and disadvantages to this? Does this build trust by showing they keep things under lock and key or hurt trust by not being transparent? Also, is keeping it a secret something the FBI would advise? Hector, what's your, uh, your take on this? Yeah, no, I mean, look, when a breach happens, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the back end. You have to, yeah, you have to obviously you go into the incident response. Um, you're looking at uh, risk assessments. You're looking at potential angles, potential attack paths. You're investigating this potential breach. Then you have to go up to legal and legal gets involved. At that point, depending on your organization, depending on what state you're in as well, because remember, ladies and gentlemen, and this is for the this is for the U.S. audience, I'm sure 
the audience outside the U.S., you may have different laws in your countries. But here, it's not, I, don't, I don't feel like it's consistent. Some states require or have some sort of breach notification laws. Others do not. So it depending on what legal says, depending on your state laws, you definitely have to either be extremely transparent from the jump or you have to document everything and, and you know, go upstream to uh, through legal. Yeah. So they, uh, like Hector said, there's a lot of regulated industry um, where they have to disclose to certain regulators. Um, they have to disclose if certain information is stolen. But, you know, it, sometimes it's not companies hiding it. it. It just takes a while to get the answers and get the answers right. That's um, right. You don't want to do a disclosure and get people worried um, if you can then show that information wasn't taken. Um, you know, you know. Always, you know, side on, you know, what's what's right, what's best, and what you you have to do. But there, there's nothing like putting out false information and then have to go in back and be actually it didn't happen this way. Um, and we're talking about such you know complex investigations that you know it's you're not going to get an answer within a, a few days. You know, not something definitive. Um, so so it does take time. But you know, I always go on the side of being you know disclosing is more is better. You know, it, it, you don't want someone to find out you're lying uh, or have lied, you know, because that's just too difficult to come back from a lie. I find it's too hard to uh, live your life with a bunch of lies. Um, so transparency seems to be a, a, an easier approach for me. Um, as to whether the FBI would ever advise to keep it a secret. So if it is a state-sponsored hack of your company, like uh, for another foreign nation, um, is using your company and they, they broke in, let's say, and they're using your company as a hot point. Um, that meaning they're using your systems to then do an attack on U.S. infrastructure. I have seen where the government would ask you to keep that hot point going, to isolate the network a little bit, to try to minimize risk to your company, but also to allow the FBI to collect information uh, about the attack that, that's continuing on. So, um, well, it's, it wouldn't be a disclosure, but they, you know, they would ask the company not to talk about it because they wouldn't want, sure. you know, the target of the national security investigation to realize that, you know, the FBI is involved or, or for on it. Yeah. And so I guess the short answer, and this, and this is me just kind of taking both answers that we provided and kind of shortening it. Right. I think the, the short answer really is it all depends, right? It depends on. Your situation depends on what industry you're in, what kind of regulations you have to deal with, what kind of breach are we talking about, what state you're located in, what country you're located in. Like, there's a lot of variables. Transparency is awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm for it. But depending on your situation, you may not be able to do that. Yeah, there are certainly you know regulations and rules where the companies can't talk about a breach um, for various reasons, uh, you know, based on the regulators. So it's an excellent point, Hector. Earlier, we got a question from Rachel Hector. Now we have a different one from Raquel, a whole different person. Nah, it's Rachel. Uh, hopefully it's Rachel. <laughs> Same person. She sent in two different emails, so we'll, we'll awesome. answer her question. Big shout out to Rachel. Thank yeah. you, Rachel. Rachel's a new listener. She found the show and loves it. So, But she asked, uh, I'd like to hear more on the show about what it's like for you getting back into cyber after some time away from it. Um, how did you personally set objectives uh, for what to learn? And how did you stay motivated if you have to relearn something you already knew, did you consider switching to something else entirely? A lot of questions there, Rachel. Um, mm -hmm. We will try to go through and answer the best. So, Hector, how do you stay motivated and how do you relearn something? Yeah, well, when I had to deal with my court case and um, there was a period of time where I could not be online or work for a security company or uh, 
be around uh, certain facilities. And I mean, I had limits. That's my point. Um, I cannot work doing the stuff that I do now. I cannot do the work that I'm doing right now. So um, I personally just, instead of just staying home and being depressed and thinking about it, I went to a couple of friends and said, hey, let me get your tow truck. I'm going to go do some towing. Um, I guess I'll, I'll help some people out to get into accidents and get them home and, you know, kind of do that for a while. It was it was very well paying. Believe it or not, those tow truck drivers make a, a ton of money um, depending on where they're at, especially in places like the Bronx or Queens or uh, other places where they're very active. Right. A lot of highways and so on. I picture you driving tow trucks. I, I, for some reason, as you say, and I, I know that was part of your life and we, we you know, we talked during it, but it's like a goodwill hunting type thing. This guy with so much great knowledge about this field that he can't do anything in. Um, and he's, you know, he's driving a tow truck, you know, but he, he could pull over and hack into a foreign government. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, the, the one thing I'll say is that I, I had to do something and I had to take care of my family. I couldn't just be out there just kind of lingering and, and, um, you know, just, just, just no, kind of living I, off my family. I understand, you know, when you say yeah. limitations, he was court ordered and, you know, yeah. that he could not, you know, be involved in computers. Um, until yeah. this court case got all resolved. So, you know, that's the system we have in the United States. But, you know, mm -hmm. good on you for not just sitting around and not working. Um, you yeah. found a job that you could do to support your family. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, when – and this is this is actually the fun part. So, Rachel might like this. I would read the newspapers, believe it or not. I'll pick up New York Times and I'll pick up the New York Post or whatever, and I'll check a story out about uh, – I'll, a, a, I'll see something about hacking, you know. And uh, I'll kind of read through it and, you know, kind of visualize what the attack paths were. It was very nerdy, I admit. I, I, <laughs> please don't judge me too hard. But I'll sit there and say, wow, okay, so there was a compromise here. Let's see how they did it. Um, here's how I would do it. And that's kind of how I kept myself busy, right? I would kind of just visualize and use my imagination. And then now once the court order was over with and I could get back online, it was very easy for me to get back online and go back to security. I'm going to tell you why. Because a lot of security issues that we're dealing with today are the same issues we dealt with 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? Password issues, social engineering, uh, asset management, lack of backup policies, outdated software, uh, obsolete configurations or misconfigurations. These are all things that have not changed. So did I have a period where I had to relearn things? Not so much. But I had to reintroduce myself or rather introduce brand new tools into my life. Because since my arrest, all the way up to what, 2015, 2016, when I was, was able to get back online or whatever it was, um, new tools came out, amazing things, new methodologies, new attack paths, new research came out that completely blew my mind. Big shout out to like all the Spectre Ops people and, and all those guys on, on InfoSec Twitter that really went hard on Active Directory and Windows Security. Because um, as soon as I got back online, I started reading all their research and I was like blown away. And it, it, it gave me an opportunity to kind of relearn again or learn again. And it felt wonderful, let me tell you. But your whole career, you've had a great thirst for knowledge and an excellent ability to teach yourself new things. So, you know, I really commend you on that. Yeah, I'm a nerd, but you know what? <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so she did ask, uh, did you ever consider switching to something else entirely? I'll be honest with you, Rachel. I'm not a good painter, an artist. I can't really draw anything. Um, I'm not a good mechanic, even though I love cars. I could I could put in a light bulb and I could change the oil. You know, I guess, no. I, I did not think about it. I did not contemplate it. 
I figured I would go back into security. And maybe at some point in my, in my future, when I'm able to retire, maybe I'll do something else. Maybe woodworking. I think woodworking would be really cool. Oh, uh, yeah. The idea of making something with my hands and like holding yeah. something, uh, yeah, that, that sounds very rewarding to me. Yeah, I, I always joke around about my my first big project could be a birdhouse. Oh. I always joke around about that, and I think that 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 probably will be my reality. I didn't realize there's so much to a birdhouse, like the specific opening, the how high you place it, like off the ground and all that. You'll attract a specific type of bird. Yeah, no, you're right. There's a lot of details to it. I never, I recently looked into it. Uh, or my mother-in-law, she uh, she was telling me about it. So she's a big listener. She's a big fan of yours. So, oh man, big shout out to her. And I would love to speak with her more about birdhouses and the the science behind it. All right, Hector, another great episode. New episodes every Thursday. Download, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Uh, a lot of I've seen a lot of shout outs on social media. We appreciate that, guys. Spread the word. Get the show out there. Um, and yeah, it's just fun talking to you. Yeah, likewise, brother. It's always a pleasure. Um, I, I enjoy these moments. His big shout out to you, and and uh, you know, I know there's a lot of things going on in both our lives, but you know what? We're gonna make this. Uh, we're gonna make it through it. So, big shout out to you. Big shout out to the audience. Thanks for listening. All right, cheers, brother. Cheers.